Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the We've Learned More Than You Think But Less Than You Wish edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I'm joined by economist and writer Noah Smith for a sweeping overview of the economic lessons we've learned since the financial crisis, or to be more precise, the lessons we've learned about the economic questions that we need to ask and maybe should have been asking all along, and which hopefully someday we'll be able to answer. Noah, hello. Hey, how's it going? Quick meta question for you to start. I love right? meta questions. Yeah. Historically, uh, you've been, I think, cautiously skeptical about the knowability of economics, about what economists can know, in particular macroeconomics, right? right. I seem to detect an undercurrent of uh, increasing optimism in the last year or so. Uh, is that a fair assessment? I think that it's more about uh, the topics themselves shifting into things that I'm more confident about. I think I'm not really any more confident about macroeconomics in terms of its potential than I was at the beginning. Really? Yeah. So, like, uh, let me give you a couple of examples that I pulled, again, from your writing. The ability of behavioral ideas or ideas from behavioral psychology and behavioral economics to influence macroeconomic models, the empirical uh, revolution in economics coming to macro. You mentioned at one point a presentation by Justin Wolfers about the life of uh, Olivier Blanchard, again, focusing on empirics and falsification. Do you think that these are all trends that are going to continue? And are you excited about it? I'm happy to see it because I think it reflects uh, a greater uh, humility among macroeconomists to say, okay, the stuff we really, really pushed and just convinced ourselves was true for the last 25 years without real justification is not true. And we've got to fix this and we've got to try something else. The problem is macroeconomics deals with things that are just very hard to identify in the data. It deals with time series that are highly correlated with lots of you know, non-ergodicity, lots of random stuff happening that never happened really before in our data sets. That's time series econometrics for uh, shit happens. <laughs> so, And so that's really hard. You know, it's really hard to know these kind of things. And so I think it's still going to be very hard. And these new innovations are going to tell us a tiny bit more, but not a hell of a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately people will move on to some other fad probably. But it's good that they're trying this. It means that they sort of are realizing that they can't just, you know, speak in, in an oracular fashion and have everyone believe them that this is how the economy works. So the, that newfound sense of humility uh, is something that I, I think I've observed uh, increasingly over the last half decade or so. But there's a reason I wanted to have you on this podcast. You and I every year attend the annual meetings of the American Economics Association in January, um, in this case, uh, Chicago this year. And I think the proximate reason for the despondency that I noticed among some economists was the election of Donald Trump. 
A lot of economists wondering uh, if you know they're useful to the public anymore. A lot of economists seeing that so many people voted for a guy who has very strong protectionist leanings, for instance, uh, and then started thinking, well, God, I mean, if there are a couple of bedrocks in economics, you know, one of them would be, you know, incentives matter, and the other is free trade is good, right? right. Uh, and and they're sort of uh, going through a period of angst, I guess, about all this. As I look back over the last roughly decade since the financial crisis, it actually seems like economists are at least starting to ask a lot of questions that they probably should have been asking beforehand. But it seems like they actually have learned a lot about at least which questions to ask, if not exactly uh, providing the answers to all those questions. So I have a long list of topics that I want us to go through. Does this sound exciting? I'm ready. Okay. I'm, I'm pumped. Man. Good. Here's where we're going to start. The study of inequality, I think, before the crisis felt like kind of a fringy topic in economics, right? Then in short order, we had the surprising popularity of the Occupy Wall Street movement. We had Thomas Piketty's massive book giving a kind of sweeping historical overview and introducing a new theory about inequality uh, that turned out to be, again, surprisingly popular, especially in the United States. And then you, you started hearing politicians and, of course, the Pope <laughs> mention it as well. It, it kind of seems like now inequality is at the forefront of what economists are talking about, and they've even gotten that out into the public consciousness as well. That's right, and that's a really good development, and it's a really late development. Part of it is just because a, a group of dedicated researchers, Piketty, uh, Saez, Zuckman, came along and just started really getting good data and pushing this agenda very it's, hard. It's Gabrielle Zuckman and Emmanuel Saez, for our listeners who don't know. Right. You know, partly it was because of that, the, the supply of, of ideas, and partly it was the demand for ideas because of the recession. Suddenly, when the uh, tide isn't rising, you know, the, the rising tide is supposed to lift all boats. When the tide's not rising and people notice some boats are still getting lifted, well, hmm. And so people really noticed. And so I think there was a larger demand for that as well. Why do you think that it did take economists that long uh, to start studying it? Part of it is just because a rising tide does lift all or most boats. And, you know, when you start talking about inequality, you're talking about distribution. Should we take stuff from some people and give it to other people? And that's a touchy subject. If economists hold forth on that subject, they sound like they're playing politics. They sound like they're favoring one group over another. If they say, yes, we need more redistribution, they sound like socialists. And if they say, no, we don't need any redistribution, then they sound like... Gilded Age, hyper-capitalist, right. whatever. And so economists don't like to sound political. Contrary to what you may have heard, economists actually don't want to be political, mostly. A few do, but most don't. I think that's what really made them focus on growth, focus on things that everybody could agree on, focus on pre-deficiency. Right. Because at least we can agree on that. That was their idea. And it was really to avoid being seen as political. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of what we have learned since the crisis, before the crisis, it was widely thought, not by everybody, but I think by most economists, that there was a trade-off between growth, as you mentioned, economic growth, vigorous economic growth, and inequality. So if you did want to redistribute you know, the gains from income, that was fine. And that was a worthy idea in and of itself up to a point because it was thought that there was a trade-off with economic growth that, okay, the pie has expanded. Now you're redistributing some of it. But that also means that the pie won't expand as quickly as it had uh, in the absence of redistribution. That seems to have been rethought completely in the years uh, since the crisis. I don't know if it's been rethought completely, but I think people are starting to question it. I think that idea came out of the competition between socialism and capitalism in the early 20th century because you saw some countries go really hard for 
what eventually became communism, you saw them, except for a very few short spurts, uh, not have much growth. Mm-hmm. And then you saw the Western nations and Japan, uh, if that counts as a Western nation, getting rich and uh, developed economies. Let's call it yeah, developed economies, getting getting richer and being more capitalistic. And they thought, okay, well, there's this this trade off, and there pretty obviously is when you start cracking down hard enough to try to make everyone exactly equal, you're going to obviously mess up your society and economy in some pretty serious ways. So at the extreme levels, there really is obviously a trade-off. You can't make everyone exactly equal without some major weirdness going on. But the question is, at the place we are now, is there a fundamental trade-off? Does that trade-off always exist? Do you know the uh, leaky bucket analogy? Uh, No, tell us. Oaken's leaky bucket. (laughs) I think is Arthur Oaken. I never, never remember anyone's first name. And, uh, and he said, it's like a leaky bucket. You can move money from the, the rich people to the poor people, but you end up dripping some out of the bottom on the way. Mm-hmm. And that was the idea. And I think people are starting to realize that the economy is very, very far from that simple idealized version where any intervention distorts the market. There's this idea of the theory of the second best. Do you know that one? Uh, no, tell us. All right, so... The theory of the second best is the government and, you know, big monopoly companies and, and whatnot have already messed up the economy in so many ways that a new intervention won't necessarily mess it up more because it might counteract one of the existing ways in which it's messed up. Right. And so there's a new recognition that the economy is already so far from that, that perfect free market optimum in so many ways that interventions that we do to, for example, reduce inequality may not make the economy worse off may actually make it better off. And we don't really know until we try. And so we have to kind of look at it empirically. And I think that's where most people and the most reasonable people are now. And you still get people saying, okay, there is this trade-off and sort of taking that on faith, especially some some older guys, Mankiw, Cochran, some of these guys, especially guys with conservative leanings. But I would hazard to say that most smart young people now realize that we're so far away from the optimum that this trade-off may not exist anywhere close to where we are. Okay. Also seems like uh, the study of inequality is becoming increasingly more uh, granular, right? So we're not just looking at the big wealth inequality or income inequality trends. We're also uh, breaking it down by demographic, by racial and ethnic categories. Um, We're looking now at regional inequalities within a single country. This also seems to be like a, a pretty healthy trend within economics. I think so. That's that's interesting, but I'm not sure it's a healthy trend in politics because I think politics is really splintering, at least in the United States and maybe in much of, of Europe. It's sort of become this anarchic, all-against-all Hobbesian uh, sort of world. But doesn't it help to have that understanding, in other words, to know what the trends actually are so that we can tailor policies uh, to help solve for them where appropriate? Maybe, but... Keep in mind, there's a long pipeline there with many joints in the pipe. You have to have people figure out the trends, and then you have to have them communicate the trends to people who care about them, and those people have to muster the political will and political capital to actually do something about it, and then you need to have been right for the effects to actually happen, and then people need to notice that the effects actually happen and care about it. That's a huge, long pipeline. It sort of reminds me of like the the game you can play when you're a kid where uh, one kid tells a, a secret to another kid and then they go around the table and by the time it gets to the eighth kid, it's a totally different telephone, sentence, you know what I mean? Yeah, game. the telephone game. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> I would always say something completely insane in the telephone <laughs> game. Yeah, no, it's it's a little like that. It's 
it's very hard to do that. You need a you need well-functioning institutions. You need stable technocracy that sort of believes in expertise. You need a well-informed, attentive public. These things. I'm not sure we have any of these, and and I think we're splintering along so many lines. Maybe not regionally yet, uh, but certainly you know, kind of urban versus rural, racial, gender, education-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, this notion of the the front row kids and the back row kids, you've heard that one. I have. Although, I mean, it, in terms of, like, economics, I think we do have pretty good research on the difference between, like, college-educated kids and non-college-educated people, you know. But some of these studies may do nothing more than call attention to some of these cleavages. Right. And they may simply get angry mobs saying, oh, look, those people have the money. Let's go yeah, burn that- down their neighborhood. That's fair. Uh, and an interesting observation, by the way, about the difficult transmission from knowledge to uh, whether or not you're actually going to end up doing the right thing politically. In terms of economics, though, it still seems like this is a helpful advancement, right? In other words, that we're learning how to study this in a little bit more detail, and we're still trying to figure out where uh, it is that like specific vulnerabilities arise in the population. I think that's a good yeah. thing. I mean, I think it's a long-term project. Okay. Let's talk about um, theories of uh, economic stagnation, right? Let me first start with uh, what I think is usually called a supply-side stagnation, which is just that uh, the productive capacity of the economy is not growing uh, as quickly as it used to. An economist named Robert Gordon has been writing about this for a very long time, and he recently came out with a magisterial book about it. But I think in terms of entering the public consciousness, the book that really did this was called The Great Stagnation by Tyler Cowen, uh, published in 2011. And now everybody's talking about whether or not there's any solution to slowing productivity growth. What do you think about that? You mean what I think about whether there is a solution to slowing productivity? No, I guess uh, what do you think about why it is that this has become such a prominent theme in the last 10 years? Because growth has been slow. We had a, <laughs> we had a big recession, a very slow right. recovery, and then reasonably slow growth afterwards. The big boom days have not returned. And so obviously people are worried that this is here to stay. People are very extrapolative. You know, They say today's trends will persist forever. And I think that this gives them a reason to believe in that and worry about it. Sure. Let me add a bit of context because you're right. That question sounded pretty dumb as I as I asked it. But like the, the point of the Great Stagnation is it actually measured productivity growth uh, has been slower since the 1970s. Not, this isn't something that uh, just happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And with the exception of about an eight-year period in the late 90s and early 2000s, it slowed mm-hmm. down quite a bit from the post-war period, uh, which lasted you know, some three decades before the slowdown. And it seems to me like it's still a mysterious issue. Like We're still not exactly sure why productivity growth has slowed so much. We have some ideas. We have a lot of ideas, but it's still unclear. But it's interesting to me that economists have done a pretty good job, I think, in the last decade of getting the question out there and trying to understand it. I think that's true. And I think that Economists don't really understand what makes economies productive, and that's not a knock on economists. That's just really hard to know. Traditionally, they focused on technologies and how those technologies were used, but there's also things like human capital. You know, we can't really educate people for their whole lives. We're running out of lifetime to educate people, and we're running out of people to, to educate. You know, our population's slowing down. Growth is slowing down. And, um, and that could affect us in a number of very complicated ways, uh, reduce specialization gains to specialization. It could reduce right. economic clustering in cities, things like that. It could simply reduce you know, vitality. Younger people do more new stuff, start more new businesses. You can have things like monopolies that choke off 
whole markets with uh, with monopoly power. You can have government regulations. You can have government intervention that's really, really difficult to detect, like in China. You can have all kinds of things. You could have financialization. A lot of people have talked about whether that affects productivity. You could have all kinds of things in productivity, and it's really difficult to measure some of these things. We have theories about them. Yeah, and there's probably 10 other things I didn't even mention. Yeah, no, but like th- think about how many things you did just mention, it's right? A lot, yeah. All of these things are now being studied pretty actively by economists, I think a lot more than they were uh, before the crisis. And this seems like yeah. a fairly recent phenomenon. Sure, yeah, and that's good, and you can try. But think about regulations. So there's state and federal regulations, and there's no way to measure regulations. So they've tried to use things, very crude, blunt measures like pages in the code of of federal regulations or federal register, just pages, uh, instances of the word shall not or will not. But, you know, one thing that you're prevented from doing, if I have one regulation that says you shall not breathe anymore, well, then that'll do all the work. (laughs) And there's no way to catch that from from text analysis, you know. Um, Then you're just dead. And so it's really, really hard to tell. There's very few ways to do these natural experiments. These things are happening all the time. It's hard to measure whether things are more or less regulated because right. what does that even mean? Technology, it's very hard to measure these things. Robert Gordon does an exhaustive sort of history of, of technology, but that's, that's very hard to measure. There's things that aren't even measured in GDP like leisure. Lots of people think that Internet consumer technologies have increased the value of our leisure uh, by making us stare at screens instead of doing unproductive things like uh, have sex or – or have friends. Right. Um, <laughs> and so then, uh, sorry, I had to just get Yeah, hey, in. you got to go there sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, um, all those those things are going down, yeah. you know, all those things. So, so, yeah, I mean, we could be using leisure more productively. We could be happier with the things we have. We could be goofing off more at work. We could be working half the actual time we were working before and spending the other half on social media. Yeah. Dramatic increase in leisure, which itself might have become more productive. Mm-hmm. We might be working only half as much as we were working 30 years ago. Right. That, and that could be completely unobserved. That's a huge increase in productivity. That's a doubling in productivity. Yeah. That means our real wage doubled because now we're essentially just spending extra time goofing off. And when you have more people teleworking and working in their self-driving cars and you know, teleconferencing and stuff, you'll really be able to measure that uh, with some kind of software that tracks time on task. Mm-hmm. And at that point, people will realize – might realize, oh, wait, we're actually hardly working at all. Keynes's future has come true. And the only reason (laughs) that was obscured for a couple of decades was because you still had these physical workplaces and these outdated systems that made people come in and do their slacking off in their offices, you know, instead of at home. Right. I should note that uh, it's not just that the trend, if that proves to be the case, was obscured. Actually, the data show the exact opposite, um, which is that uh, actually people uh, who are high income and highly educated uh, are working more and more. And the people who were low income uh, and had uh, less than a college degree were working less and less. Right. Now, this hold is on a, a second. Though. Yeah. Yeah. We're working more and more I'm, hours. I'm just spending the more data. hours in the office. Exactly. Yes. Longer hours. Longer hours. Correct. What are they doing in those hours? No, that's that's are exactly those hours the point. That's exactly right. So in other words, if you're right and it turns out to be the case that people actually were not doing the work all that time, then then not only was the data obscuring that trend, it was actually showing the wrong thing. Correct. The exact opposite. Scenario. What if People spend time at the office so they can goof around on social media instead of having to do the work of taking care of their kids. Yeah, that's also a possibility, right? Who <laughs> then knows? longer yeah. hours is actually more leisure hours. Yeah. 
That's a that's a good point. And by the way, that's related to something else that I think is happening, which is that we're looking for newer and better ways to measure the economy and economic growth. And it's not just in terms of like GDP having been invented during a time when the economy was more industrial than it is now. It's also the question of, are we getting for free a lot of stuff that does have value, but we don't know how to measure that value because uh, the economy is so heavily digitized now. Right. That's right. Well, we never knew how to measure the value of leisure. We, that, that has never been a thing that we've mm-hmm. been able to do. But like before, if you had to buy something, right, at least there would be that price mechanism. Whereas now, if you're getting a lot of, I guess I guess the, the word would be utility, but let's just say if you get a lot of enjoyment out of something for free that in the past you would have been willing to pay for, maybe that's not being measured because you spend exactly. more time doing that or because you, you actually get more enjoyment out of it. It's highly likely that that's going on yeah. and that people are enjoying their leisure more. Right. And I guess I'm saying that that is increasingly being pointed out by economists, that problem. Uh, On the other hand, so I, think than it was that, before. I think there's some ways in which people enjoy their leisure less uh, because of the opiate epidemic. I think mm-hmm. that, oh, you know, opiates really slaughter your, your pleasure reward center of your brain. And so I think that a lot of people are just unhappy all the time now as a result of having taken too many opioid painkillers and heroin and things like that. So those people are in a bad way. Yeah. And that probably reduces effective economic growth. Yeah. So that would have to. I mean, in addition to being a, a tragic situation and right. one that's getting worse and worse, uh, right. yeah, I would there's imagine. Other, there's that's other things right. we value. So there's incomplete markets. There's things that there's just no market for. The Beatles saying, "Money can't buy me love." Mm-hmm. Well, money can't also also can't really buy you a low crime city. It can get you out of a high crime one, but it can't buy you a low crime city. And so, but we've had this, this giant reduction in crime, especially in the late '90s. Um, and again, during the uh, early Obama years, we had another reduction in crime. Right. Seems to always happen when Democrats are president. Don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sure Larry Bartels, the political scientist, will have something to say about yeah. that. But anyway, so we had this giant drop in crime. We've had giant drops in pollution. Until recently, we had big increases in health. Recently, obesity and heroin have been uh, reversing the health improvement right. in America. But in most countries, you've had big improvements in life expectancy. And in America, black and Hispanic people have had huge improvements in life expectancy and big improvements in health. Right. Let's talk about one other uh, kind of stagnation, secular stagnation. This is uh, this is not a new idea. Um, it was originally an idea from the 1930s, but it was repopularized about three years ago by Larry Summers. Uh, this is the idea that the natural rate of interest uh, is permanently lower than it used to be for a number of mysterious reasons. This is, again, still, I think, a conjecture. One of those reasons is, as you noted earlier, demographics, so more aging in the population, Mm -hmm. uh, less population growth. Another uh, is more income inequality, the idea being that uh, if you have more income inequality, then the uh, savings rate of uh, people who have more money at the top increases, while the uh, consumption rate for people at the lower end of the scale stays about the same, but they're borrowing more money, which is why it doesn't show up as an overall higher savings rate. But these are people that over time, especially uh, when you have a big credit crisis or whatever, end up getting hurt a lot more than the people at the top who had more money to begin with. So anyways, secular stagnation, what do you think about this idea? Almost no one's paying attention to it. Really? I think apart from you know a very wonky circle of economists, people aren't really paying attention to this. You have some people We've made models of this in the macro literature. And really, I, I think when people hear the word secular stagnation, I would be willing to bet you that 80% of the people who sort of perk up and, and think about that think they're 
listening to the productivity stagnation story, the supply side stagnation. Yes, story. there is a lot of confusion I would say about it. I know people who are well informed who read the news who didn't understand the difference between these two until I explained it, and then when they heard the thing that Summers believes, they're like, "What? No!" and just completely forgot, right. not ignored so, it. So to, to be clear for our listeners uh, who may not be uh, familiar with this. The Summers theory of secular stagnation is that there is a chronic demand shortfall, um, whereas the theory of the supply-side stagnation is that the productive capacity of the economy is not growing as fast as it used to. So anyways, okay, fair enough. Uh, you don't think economists are paying attention to it? I would say that the public has paid attention to it in part because Larry Summers has quite a big presence you know, in the news. When the, when the public hears secular stagnation, what they hear is good times are never coming back. They don't think about demand side theories, and actually the theory involved is a little bit subtle and a little bit you know, wonky. I would say that a very small percentage of people who hear that term hear anything besides the stagnation okay. part. Fair enough. I guess to, to me, like Summers brought it up. It gets talked about a lot. Sometimes there only some components of it get talked about, right? Gaudi Egerton came up with some kind of a, a model of secular stagnation. Oh, yeah. He's um, not the only one either. You know, and not the only one. Matt uh, Romley. That's right, Matt Romley. And... Uh, Alclair, Ronley and Alclair, it's uh, his, okay. his co-author. They have a model, a new model that sort of produces a secular stagnation result with the inequality thing that you talked right. about. Okay. Moving on. You, you already kind of uh, talked a little bit about this earlier, but the uh, decline in labor force participation, right? For men, this has been happening steadily for like seven decades or something like that. For women in the U.S., it's been in decline since roughly, I think, the late 1990s. But there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is, again, being driven by a demand shortfall or if this is mostly a supply-side problem that's hard to detect or, again, if there is some kind of overlap between the two things. Right. The short answer is no one really knows what's going on. Yeah. Hangover from the recession is one possibility. You had all these people who just got used to being unemployed and decided to never go back because they had lost their work ethic and lost their connections and lost their sense of pride and blah, 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 gotten used to this lifestyle. Uh, as Tyler Cowen says of, uh, of porn and video games, that was his phrase. There's this other idea that there is this permanent demand shortage. Then there, there's evidence that more of these people are using disability insurance. There's evidence that uh, more of these people have been on drugs. So the, the opioid and heroin Prevents sort of, them from getting back into yeah, the labor force. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really hard when you're struggling on heroin to work, you know, believe me. Right. No, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> one thing I was going to point out also is that for a very long time in a lot of models, economic models, the separability of the demand side and supply side was assumed, right? And this is a this is a, a theme that we've explored in this podcast before. But it seems to me like this also applies to this issue of labor force participation, where, for instance, if you have people that have fallen out of the labor force, there might be hysteresis effects, right? right. So it's hard to get them back in. And so you might say, well, at this point, it's a supply side problem, right? In other words, they're not motivated or whatever. They just don't want to go back to work. Right. They're despondent. But if the demand side pushes hard enough, then the trade-off between staying out of the labor force and coming back into the right. labor force starts to tilt back in the other direction. Like it's not, it's not always this clear-cut thing of, well, right. these supply-side factors are fixed. The demand side is what it is, but that just controls who is actually working and their wages or whatever. Like these things overlap. Uh, Noah's rule of okay. supply-side and demand-side, which I'm just making up right now, but it's true. Everyone Very excited knows it. about this. <laughs> Any interesting model will 
not have a clear dividing line between supply and demand. Okay. Any interesting model. And um, does interesting mean closer to the truth, in your opinion? Uh, no, interesting means fun to work with mathematically and new. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I think supply and demand were great in the market for oranges, right? If there's a hurricane that disrupts the supply of oranges, orange prices will rise and you'll get less oranges sold. And uh, that's pretty clear, right? Or if some new new popular recipe with oranges comes out, then people buy more oranges and, you know, uh, something like that. Prices will go up. Those are very simple cases. I think we're, we're learning that in some markets you have things where supply and demand look like each other. So this is especially true in anything where you have intertemporal effects, where you have stuff over time, because demand one day turns into supply the next day and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And the intuition that, oh, it's supply, oh, it's demand that everybody gets in their Econ 101 classes really holds them back and holds people back from being able to think carefully about these things because it's not the right framework to think about this in. It's like people who are stuck on physics 101 with projectile motion, and they're trying to analyze like a submarine or something underwater, and it's just not working. Why isn't it working? And, you know, but of course I know these things, basic concepts, but you're underwater. It doesn't work. And then in other cases, we don't really know what the heck is going on. So, for example, in labor markets, uh, we're starting to realize that the theory of supply and demand does not apply to labor markets. And that's a scary thing because it's kind of the, this touchstone, this anchor mental rock that people cling to about labor markets, the idea of labor market supply and demand, and it's just not working. We can get into that later if you want. Let's get into it now. All right, uh, let's do what, it. How, how does it break down do uh, right in, in labor market? All right, so fact number one is that when there's a large surge of immigration, the reduction in wages uh, and employment is only very small. And so, you know, since immigration is a large positive supply shock to labor, I, I can't show you know, graph on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, you right. can see, you can see my hands, right? Point, yeah. Okay, so then what that means is if there's a large supply shock, positive supply shock to labor, and you don't see uh, wages go down very much, well, what that means is that demand should be very elastic, right? You should have very elastic demand in order for that to be true. Okay, well, fine. We have very elastic demand. And, and, and keep in mind, that's for uneducated, low-skilled laborers without college degrees, like, you know, basically men without college degrees or right. Hispanic men without college degrees. You right. can cut it as fine as you want. Let me just all tran- these things still hold. all you know? this in, in the English real quick, yeah. right? Uh, essentially, when you say supply shock to labor, you mean a flood of more workers into That's the right. labor market, right? right? Who are competing now yeah. with the existing workers. Suddenly, Fidel Castro decides to boot a bunch of people, and they all show up in Miami. That's and right. wages for unskilled Hispanic men in Miami unskilled, low-income Hispanic men in Miami don't even go down by very much at all, right. if at Despite all. Despite what would appear to be more competition. So when you right. say that exactly. demand is elastic, you mean that demand changes in response to... No, no, to no. I mean demand is elastic. Dema- I'm not saying demand changes. I'm saying demand, the curve is flat because if you slide that supply curve out, you don't get right. wages it, going it very al- much it down. It moves along the curve. Right, okay. exactly. Right. Moves, the supply curve moves slides, moves along the demand curve, and since the demand curve's flat, the, the vertical change is not very big, and so you don't get much of a decrease in wages, okay? Right. So that's a fact. That, that keeps holding in a lot of studies, all right? Do a lot of immigration studies, and all, they all show very small impacts. Some you do get a negative impact, some you get nothing, but it's never a very large negative impact. So you say, okay, so labor demand, at least in this low-end segment of the market, is very elastic. Now, you look at minimum wage. Minimum wage affects exactly the same set of workers. 
very, very you know, similar set of people who will be affected by that. You look at minimum wage and you see that minimum wage hikes almost never lead to rapid decreases in employment within the next year, two years, or whatever. Right. Uh, farther out, some people say yes, some people say no. It's harder to study because a lot of other things happen in interim. But in the next couple of years, really, you never get very big decreases in employment from minimum wage. You get a little bit, very little. So the question is, okay, how do you reconcile that with supply and demand theory? Now, if that is a price floor. A minimum wage is a price floor. And as we all know from Econ 101, if a price floor doesn't affect the quantity of labor demanded very much, it's because demand is very inelastic. The demand curve is straight up and down. So even if you set a price floor uh, higher, it doesn't really drive much of a wedge between the supply and demand curves. You Mm -hmm. can imagine that. So that would mean, okay, demand is highly inelastic for this labor, low-end labor, okay? Those can't both be true. They can't both be true at the same time. You can't have demand that is simultaneously very elastic and very inelastic. That's called, there really isn't such a thing as a demand curve. You know, it's, it's... you're using the wrong model. It can't fit both those facts. So the, the basic labor supply and demand curve, Econ 101 thing that we all use to think about minimum wage and, and whatever, overtime rules, immigration, and all the other labor market stuff isn't right. That's not the right model. That's, that's called falsification. That's called, you know, your model's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of other things that might be true, I have my suspicions about what those might be, but the basic framework that everybody uses to think about this has just been really kicked in the head. Sure. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting contradiction there, and I wouldn't know how to reconcile that either. You could um, use a different model. To, you could use a different model. Um, yeah. It could be that one of the models is right and the other is wrong. There are all kinds of uh, possibilities here. Though, again, I can give this... you a model that works if you want, <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> of course. Though, again, I got to say this kind of fits into my theory that these things are being increasingly explored since the crisis. So the idea that economics is not evolving at all seems still kind of wrong to me. It seems like it is uh, It is at least oh, yeah. looking at this a little bit more carefully. Oh, it absolutely is. And I'm pessimistic about changes in macro because I think that while well-intentioned and, and good, uh, macro is just really hard to get right. So it, only incremental progress will be possible, very slight progress. Mm-hmm. But I think in things like labor economics and other micro things where you can get a lot of different little natural experiments, you can look at Seattle minimum wage increase, and you can look at immigration, you know, some town in New Mexico. And you can do all these, you can get really good identification, as the uh, statistics people say. You can really get a lot of informative data mm-hmm. and look at a lot of natural experiments. And I think it's in areas like that of, of what we traditionally call microeconomics right. that huge advances are being made thanks to the empirical revolution. Okay. Let's talk about something in macro then, uh, just to, to get your suspicions uh, back All right, up, right? Yeah. All right. Um, you want me to say bad things about things? All right. No, no. I, I, no, I, I just want to talk All about right. it. That's all, all right. we do is talk right. about it. We don't, we don't bash <laughs> things unless we feel like it. I would say that the resurgence of Keynesian economics uh, in the aftermath of the crisis, and here's what I mean by that. Before the crisis, it was thought that the issue of uh, business cycle management had largely been solved, right? And that most of it could be dealt with through straightforward monetary policy. You still have the principles of Keynesian demand management, but you do it just via interest rate management itself, right? I think people still refer to this as like neo-Keynesianism rather than Keynesianism itself. In the aftermath of the crisis, the uh, role of fiscal policy to help with 
cyclical management seems to have gained, uh, if not widespread acceptance, at least a lot more acceptance than it had beforehand. You have, for instance, uh, the IMF concluding that actually austerity in the aftermath of a deep crisis is a bad idea. You had in the U.S. the stimulus, which about which there is still quite a bit of debate. But by and large, people, I think, believe that it had a, a positive effect, that it at least helped stem uh, the worst of the decline. And so it seems to me like just Keynesian macroeconomics is back. Absolutely. It's interesting because the old Keynesians, the fiscalists, really won the academic battle. There was an academic battle and they won it. And it wasn't just people like Paul Krugman, who you see in the press, although, you know, he was part of it. But it was people like Bob Hall, very serious people who suddenly just made a bunch of models showing fiscal policy could work. And it was um, people like Emmy Nakamura and John Steinson, who did a bunch of empirical analyses, or uh, Yuri Gradachenko and Alan Auerbach did a lot of these analyses showing that stimulus works. And all of these analyses had serious flaws because they're macro. And uh, they all had caveats, but people just did a whole bunch of different kinds, and they kept getting this result that shows stimulus works. And even diehard stimulus opponents, when they look at the data, they would say, well, as far as we can tell, stimulus works. could be that all those studies are wrong and that stimulus doesn't work. That's actually possible, yeah. but seems unlikely. As best we can tell, stimulus works. Yeah. But the old Keynesians kind of lost, mostly lost the politics of it. So austerity was done in Europe with, with negative consequences. And I guess they kind of backed off that, but not necessarily due to any academic stuff. It just looked like it was hurting. Mm-hmm. You had, uh, in 2011, huge fiscal cuts to, to close the, uh, the deficit, or at least fiscal restraint to close the, uh, the deficit. You had tax hikes. Basically, Obama and everyone in Europe, and even really Japan, were too afraid to do really big stimuluses after that initial crisis period. So in the, in the foxhole, as Robert Lucas once put it, everyone's a Keynesian. But once you get out of the foxhole, it was very, very difficult to get anyone to try serious stimulus to bump their countries out of that slow recovery. And really, no one tried it. Okay, let me go to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, monetary policy. Okay, okay, okay. Moving uh, beyond just an inflation targeting regime and also now starting to... Uh, Move a lot beyond just interest rate management. Obviously, there was quantitative easing. Um, but for instance, in Japan, where monetary policy has been a lot more innovative than in other places, they're now even buying up things like equities and maybe other things. I'm not sure. But they in any case, a lot of their ETF market, a lot like 40% of, big, of a big chunk ETF of the market. ETF market. But I mean, this is quite a massive shift from, uh, oh, again, where we were uh, before 2007. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. But I think the biggest surprise is that it doesn't really seem like unconventional monetary policy has any effect on anything. Um, you think so? Yeah. I mean, Japan has slipped back into deflation uh, other than food and energy. You know, Japan had a little burst of inflation for like a year, and then they slipped right back into deflation, even though they kept their monetary policy going strong. And so, of course, the people who are strong monetarists are going to say, oh, it's because they weren't credible. You know, it's because people didn't really believe that they'd keep it up forever. And if they just made people believe they'd keep it up forever, then it would have worked. And uh, who can measure that? Who can know? Are you going to go out there and take surveys of expectations and believe those surveys? Um, Maybe. But it's sort of this free parameter where people who are true believers in the ultimate power of central banks can sort of justify anything by appealing to imaginary unobservable expectations of people. Right. 
But if you are not willing to do that, then you say, okay, well, nothing happened. And then there are the neo-Fisherites who say, um, actually, the, uh, the opposite happened. The reason you know, you're, you're promised to keep interest rates lower for longer is actually why you're slipping back into deflation. And that's what's causing the deflation. And these people, uh, who many would regard as crazy, but I don't, they say, okay, you've got to raise interest rates in order to raise inflation, in order to escape deflation. Yeah. Would that work? I don't know. It would be interesting if someone tried it. I mean, if Japan raised interest rates to 3% tomorrow and just kept them there for years until people were really convinced that was the future, would that cause the economy to just tank and a deflationary spiral to happen like the new Keynesian models say? Or would that actually cause inflation like the neo-fisherians say? I, I really doubt anybody's willing to try that. In I really words, doubt that too. In other words, even I, I suspect that even a neo fisherian true believer installed at the Fed, the minute he or she would hint that they might do that, the markets would completely collapse and then everybody would start worrying about, you know, Maybe uh, so. you know. I, I suspect that's what would happen. I don't mean like a, a 25 basis point. No, no. Move. I mean like, kind of like, like 300 rate, basis yeah, point 300 move. basis point move. Yeah. Uh, in, in any case, like, again, a reconsideration, a recontemplation of the boundaries of appropriate monetary policy. Again, another big change of the last decade, I think. Yep. I think that changed overnight. You know, that was a big change, but it happened in a day. Yeah. Next up, the revolution in randomized control trials. Do you look at this very often? No. I don't. Um, I actually know relatively little about this. I've read some RCT papers, but I haven't followed the methodological debate very right. carefully. Sure. There was a book on uh, the use of RCTs in development economics that came out, I believe, in 2010 or 2011 by uh, Esther Duflo and uh, Abhijit Banerjee. That was like a blockbuster, right? Right. Other economists who like to put in uh, experiments into the field, uh, John List comes to mind, uh, have been doing this sure. for a while, but I think it's gained a lot more recognition in the last few years, enough that now you have, I don't want to call it a backlash, but you have people looking at the precise ways in which they are helpful and the precise ways in which they break down, most notably by Angus Deaton. Right. He's yeah. been the biggest critic. And I think, I, I read his criticism, I think his biggest criticism is that RCTs focus you on the things you can do RCTs for. So, you know the lamppost problem, searching under the uh, lamppost? No, tell us. Okay, so suppose you lose your keys. You're more likely to look around for your keys where there's light to look around, but that doesn't mean your keys are necessarily more likely right. to be there, called searching under the lamppost. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is if we can do RCTs with these little small-bore initiatives in these poor African countries um, – Maybe that's all that we'll look at and we'll ignore the really big things that we could do, like, you know, transforming the whole infrastructure, governmental structure of countries. Right. Conditional foreign aid. I don't even know. But big, we'll ignore big things and we'll focus only on small things because small things are the only things we can get really clean identification for, clean evidence right. for. There's also the, the question of uh, scalability, of course. Uh, if, you're yep. looking at a, right. if you're looking at a small-scale experiment, doesn't necessarily mean that you can replicate that everywhere else uh, exactly. and that it'll still have the same or proportionate effects. That's right. But still, to me, I an interesting debate uh, that I don't think was happening before. Next up. We've already mentioned uh, the empirical revolution a little bit, but I just want to note that Joshua Angrist, uh, an economist, presented something about this at this year's American Economics Association meetings. It was interesting for a few reasons. One of the things he found was that 
empirical economic work is now being cited by other social science professions more than uh, purely theoretical work. Something else that he found was that uh, economists seem to be going out and getting their hands dirty a little bit more often. And That's by a that, good trend. You know, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I, I thought that was interesting. In terms of uh, the citations, one of the responses that often uh, gets mentioned when this idea of empiricism is brought up is that you need both uh, empiricism and theory because without theory, you can't understand the empirical work. What do you think? That's probably right. The real difference is this. So with empirical work, you can say, okay, we found that raising the minimum wage from you know, $5 to seven fifty in this one place didn't do very much to hurt employment. But if you change the place or if, you know, suppose you increase it by $2 more or $2 more or $2 more, eventually you assume you'd find some level of minimum wage that would cause major disruptions in the economy. A minimum wage of $5,000, you know, you're going to have problems. And so somewhere there's going to be a nonlinearity in there, a place where your, your little local model breaks down. But your little linear model that says, you know, you know, Y equals beta X or whatever, that doesn't really tell you where it breaks down. It doesn't give you a guide to how long you can use this thing before it breaks. Mm-hmm. And you just have to continue using it and hope that, that the next $2 of minimum wage increase are kind of like the last $2. That's the real problem with this work. And if we want to make more farsighted policy and do more general things and have more confidence about that, we need structural theories that work. We need to understand why this is happening. Why isn't minimum wage killing more jobs? What is it about labor markets that means that minimum wage is not very damaging to them? Is the distinction useful then? Between what? Empirical work and theoretical work. I mean, it can be useful. So in in econometrics, in statistics, the distinction is really between sort of a reduced form, which is kind of the same as this quasi-experimental stuff. You know, we tried a thing and nothing happened. We tried a thing and this thing happened. And structural stuff, which is we believe the economy works in a certain way. Let's let's uh, let's look at the data and and see if it sort of fits that. Um, and see, you know what that implies. And so imagine these uh, scenarios. And so that's called structural econometric work. And I really think people ought to do both. People ought to be doing both of these things. One isn't a good substitute for the other, and in fact, they can complement each other because you can use these natural experiments to sort of really kill structural theories and say, look, this just failed utterly. Your structural theory said this minimum wage increase was going to kill a million jobs and it killed like 20. And so you got to go back to the drawing board on the structural theory here. So you can use it like that. And you can also use structural theories. If a structural theory, you know, really works well, you can, you can use it to explain all the experiments that you see. And, and the experiments can sort of guide you toward the right structural theory. Yeah. So I, I think these are complements, not substitutes. Okay. One final point. You and I were both in attendance when Robert Schiller gave a speech at the uh, AEA meetings where he introduced the concept of narrative economics. This was not— no, I was not. You were I not? I wasn't there. Oh, nope. okay. I'll just— I was somewhere uh, else. Okay. Oh, okay. Did you happen to read his paper? Nope. Okay. Well, then— uh, Go ne- for it. Then, then never mind. Wait, really? <laughs> well, no. He, so his, his point was not that uh, economists should be— better at telling stories in order to communicate their findings to people. His point was that economics should study the stories that people tell themselves because that'll help them understand how people make decisions. Yeah. And I was going to ask you what you thought of that. No idea. I doubt that. But 
try it. It sounds, but to me, it sounds like a natural extension of behavioral economics that uses psychological insights to try to understand right. better it's how people do things. Right. You know? It's introspection, and uh, maybe you could pick up some clues for how to how to make your models. But um, language is a very very inaccurate tool. No, Smith. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. You write for Bloomberg View. Have you started your book yet, uh, the one on uh, economics methodology that I've been telling you to write for three years? Nope, I'm, I'm starting a different book. Are you? About what's, immigration. Can you tell us what's, uh, what's the general thrust? Well, I, I just uh, made the final decision to do this book yesterday. Okay. And the general thrust is that people need to think of immigration in a different way. I'm going to suggest that way. It's going to be a manifesto. And the idea is that America or any country but especially America, is a, is a team. And uh, immigrants are recruits to that team. Immigrants aren't just people you have to live next to because they contribute to the pension system and then, you know, sort of tolerate. Immigrants are actually recruits for this, this team that is our nation. And in fact, the United States gets first-round draft pick over all their nations, and to throw that advantage away would really uh, screw this team up. Okay. That is definitely something I am looking forward to. That is all the time we have for today's show. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code for those of our listeners who are overseas. Please rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find out about us. Finally, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Uh, Noah, you are on Twitter where? No opinion. At no opinion. That's spelled Noah and then pinion. Right. There's no extra O in there. <laughs> just N-O-A-H-P-I-N-I-O-N. Got it. And you can find show notes for this and all of our other shows at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. You know what I learned about my own personal stagnation in the last 10 years? It ended the day I started collaborating with the great Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.